God, we grieve to think how cold we've been to the claims of your authority and the wooing of your love. How you've given us a path to walk, yet we choose another. How you've shown us the better way, but we've chosen a lower one. How you've presented the beauty of wisdom to us, but our eyes still chase after folly. We ache to comprehend how little we have trusted thy promises, feared thy threats, obeyed thy commands, responded to thy grace. You say come, and we run. You say trust me, and we look for other securities. You say there are consequences for our sin, yet we live like there aren't. You have shown us grace, and in return we give others law. You beckon us with mercy, and we don't even realize how much we need it. God, we did not come here to put on a show. We did not come here to impress. We did not come here to act like we are not sinners. We need your grace. We need your mercy. We need your word. If we do not hear from you in this next hour, we will not have the strength to walk out of this building. Help us to leave with greater affections for thee, deeper knowledge of thee, and a wider love for your church. This is our corporate plea. Amen. We have in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, God's divine mailbag. In it, Jesus wrote seven distinct letters to seven distinct churches. We've read the mail of five churches, and today we open the letter to the sixth church. We don't feel bad about reading someone else's mail because it's an open letter. It's an inspired letter for all churches in all times. May God, by his enabling spirit, divinely edit my words so that you can hear what your soul needs to hear and see what your spirit needs to see and rest in what your heart needs to rest in. Let's evaluate the letter to this local church by first taking a look at the city, then taking a look at the church, and finally taking a look at the Lord of the city and the church. First, taking a look at the, at the city. Verse 7 says, Jesus writes to the church in Philadelphia. Now here's something, church, I may have never told you, but I have a, I have a connection to this city. In West Philadelphia, where I was born and raised, <laughs> on a playground, it's where I spent most of my days. No, no, this is not Philly in the United States. This was Philly in ancient Asia Minor. Ancient Philly as a city was both valuable 
and vulnerable. It was valuable because soil in and around the city was particularly suited for growing grapes. Vineyards thrived in that fertile ground. Philly was the wine country of the Eastern world. Because of this, the city was valuable. But what made the land so fertile was the volcanic soil. And due to the presence of volcanoes, Philly became a hotbed for earthquakes. The ancient historian Strabo called Philly the city full of earthquakes. So it was valuable ground, but it was also vulnerable. The city rested on the edge of a volcanic bed. You've heard of Tornado Alley? Well, Philly was Earthquake Alley. There are numerous non-inspired historical accounts of this city being tumbled by earthquakes. And it wasn't just the earthquakes themselves, but also the aftershocks. At least two times they left the city totally destroyed. I say totally destroyed, but there were some things still standing. Like the big, beautiful, white stone columns that marked so many of the buildings in this day. They still stood, but the structure around the columns fell. This produced in the city constant insecurity and vulnerability. The city was always marked by panic. One scholar said these events were nerve-wracking experiences and produced psychological scars on the citizens. They would have been forced to flee the city for the countryside to establish temporary dwellings, huts and makeshift tents. They couldn't risk the destructive aftershocks tumbling these massive stone buildings and it falling and crushing them. They would only go back into the city when they had fully strengthened the walls and reinforced their houses. During one particularly destructive earthquake in AD 17, 12 cities were leveled, including Philly. Emperor Tiberius rebuilt the city. To honor him, they changed the name of the city to something close to his name. And then they carved his name in the white stone columns that supported so many of the buildings. This actually happened often. We have many historical records of them changing the name of the city. It happened at least twice. The city, in summary, is valuable and vulnerable. Valuable because of the ideal soil for producing grapes and vulnerable because it's location on a volcanic plain. They live in an earthquake region. So, taking a look at the city, now let's take a look at the church. I'd like for you to underline two words in verse 8. Jesus writes to this church and he says in verse 8, the second half, I know that you have but little power. Those two words. Little power. This church is little. They are seemingly small and insignificant. They have no impressive members. They have no impressive buildings. No beautiful white stone columns. This church is few in numbers and poor in resources. They never fill up the pews. And they always operate in the red. 
They are looked down upon by the community. They have no influence. They have no clout. But just like the city is valuable and vulnerable, so the church in Philly is valuable and vulnerable. They are vulnerable. They are, they are, excuse me, they are valuable because Jesus says in verse 9, I have loved you. Now that had to hit home to the small congregation. No one loves them. No one notices them. No one values them. But Jesus says, you're valuable to me. I love you. That's what those with little power need. They need to hear Jesus whisper through the pages of scripture, I love you. They are valuable. Jesus loves them. But they are also vulnerable. This small church was a, a multi-ethnic church. The church was made up of mostly Gentiles, but also a few Jews. And they were vulnerable to what Jesus calls in verse 9, the synagogue of Satan. The Jewish synagogue was big. This church was small. Now, the synagogue used the Bible, the Old Testament. They preached sermons. They sang hymns, but it was all Christless. The synagogue preached morality-centered sermons, and the little church preached Christ-centered sermons. The little church believed the Messiah had come, and his name was Jesus Christ. The synagogue was still waiting for their Messiah to arrive. They loved the Old Testament, but they don't see Jesus as the center of it. Sixty years before Jesus wrote this letter, before his resurrection, he walked through the Old Testament with his disciples and he said, these testify of me. He gave them a three-hour crash course on Christ-centered Old Testament preaching, a course that the synagogue of Satan wouldn't enroll in. Many Jews were integrated into these ancient Asian cities. They were making money and having influence. But Christians were the opposite. They were not integrating well into society. Why were they not integrating well? Well, first, because the Jews banned them from the synagogue. They literally shut the door in their face, locked it, and threw away the key. They said, we have access to eternal life and we are locking you out from it. Jesus says in verse 9 that these Jews are Jews, but not in the biblical understanding of Jews. They are pretenders. God calls them fake Jews. Jesus does not define them genealogically, but theologically. They are Jews outwardly, but not Jews inwardly. They were national Jews, ethnic Jews. They were members of the Jewish synagogue. They could show you their genealogy, but Jesus says, you're not inwardly Jews. You're not true Israel. Physical heritage does not mean spiritual standing. The fake Jews claim Yahweh as their God, but they're not doing God's work. They're doing the devil's work. That's not God's synagogue. That's Satan's synagogue. You have the Big synagogue of Satan and the little church of Jesus. 
Why wasn't this little church integrating well into society? Number one, the Jews banned them from the synagogue. Number two, the emperor demanded they worship him. Domitian instituted imperial worship. He wanted everyone to burn incense to him and basically bow down and worship him. He thought he was God. He demanded to be called God. He demanded to be called Lord. He thought he was the Holy One, the true one. And you were forced to treat him like God. The Roman historian Pliny calls him the beast from hell. He was known for lying and conniving, always going back on his word, for not being a man of truth. Jesus told the church in verse 8, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have not kept my word, uh, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. This little church felt the pressure to deny the name of Christ and bow to the name of Domitian. Because of their refusal to do so, it made them outsiders. It made them non-patriotic, something you did not want to be in the Roman Empire. Uh, this little church is enduring rejection. They are not wanted. They are viewed as weirdos. They constantly feel like they don't belong. Like they don't belong in the city. They feel inferior. They feel excluded. They are facing constant discouragement. They are loved, but they don't always feel loved. They feel left out. They feel locked out. They feel vulnerable. Why wasn't this little church integrating well into the city? Number one, the Jews banned them from the synagogue. Number two, the emperor demanded they worship him. Number three, they were enduring hard times. Verse 10, Jesus speaks of their patient endurance. The verb there is, is aorist tense, meaning they endured something in the past and are staying faithful. I don't know what they endured, but it wasn't roses. It was thorns and thistles. It was a result of the fall. Taking a look at the city, taking a look at the church, now let's take a look at the Lord of the city and the church. Domitian, by his behavior, is claiming to be Lord of the city and the church. But we see here Jesus introducing himself in the letter to this congregation as both the Lord of the city and the Lord of the church. And here's where we're going to begin to walk verse by verse through the text. I want us to answer a, a few questions. Uh, firstly, we're talking about this Lord of the city and the church. Firstly, what is his name? Secondly, what is he holding? And thirdly, what is he promising? We'll do them one at a time. First, what is his name? Verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the True One. Christ signs his unique signature at the beginning of the letter. Holy One. This title has allusions to the Old Testament. The Holy One of Israel. Jesus says, I am the Messiah and I am God. He's claiming oneness with the Father. This would infuriate the local Jews in the synagogue. We have here in this phrase, Holy One, we have the otherness of Christ. 
He's holy. He's separate from creation. He is separate from sin. He's completely other. Holy one, true one. Jesus is a truthful one. This title speaks of his covenant faithfulness. He never goes back on his word. Before he gives his church promises, he roots those promises in his character. He's the opposite of Domitian. He speaks only truth. He knows only truth. He's the origin of truth. Firstly, what is his name? The Holy One. The True One. Secondly, what is he holding? Verse 7b. Who has the key of David. Who opens and no one will shut. Who shuts and no one opens. The holy one, the true one is holding a key. And whatever door he chooses to open, it's going to stay open. And whatever door he chooses to close... It will remain closed. The key works both ways. Not only can he open a closed door, but he's also the only one who can keep a door shut, locked. He's the divine locksmith. Now, this is actually a play on the description of Jesus in chapter 1. Remember? In chapter 1, Jesus revealed himself as the one who holds the keys that open and lock death's door and open and lock hell's gates. No one faces death unless Jesus unlocks the door for them. And those of you that are non-Christian, you, you need to hear this reality. Everyone in hell sees Jesus shut the door on them and lock it. Hell doesn't belong to Satan. It belongs to Jesus. Satan doesn't carry those keys. Jesus does. In chapter 1, Jesus holds the keys that open and lock death's door and open and lock hell's gates. In chapter 3, where we are today, Jesus is holding keys again. But these keys are not to death's door and hell's gates. They are David's keys. David? David lived 1,100 years ago. What are his keys still doing on earth? You must leverage the Old Testament to fully understand this. This goes all the way back to 2 Kings 18 and Isaiah 22. In those texts, King Hezekiah had a faithful steward named Eliakim. And he gave Eliakim the house key to his palace and his treasury in Jerusalem, which was the city of David. The key was not one you put in your pocket like you and I are familiar with, but something very big that he carried on his shoulders. It was some mechanism that allowed him to open the king's palace, to lift the bar that ran across the double doors. King Hezekiah vested Eliakim with a symbol of authority, a key. Eliakim had immediate and constant access to everything King Hezekiah owned and where King Hezekiah lived. In the same way, Jesus Christ, the Holy One, the True One, has free access to the King's exclusive palace. Here, the, the key is picturing entrance into the heavenly palace, entrance into fellowship with God and eternal life with His Son. 
The binding authority of Eliakim was surpassed by the binding authority of Jesus. The keys of death and hell in chapter 1. The keys of heaven and eternal life in chapter 3. Jesus is locking doors no one can open and opening doors no one can lock. He alone can admit or exclude who gets into New Jerusalem, the city of David, as well as who is kept out. Now, verse 7 says the same thing two different ways. Opens, shuts, shuts, opens. Saying the same thing two different ways. And then he, he, he builds on that pattern in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I like this verse. Jesus says, I know your works. Little church, I know your works. I see what you've done. Now see what I've done. I've opened a door for you. This is a continual position. A door standing open. The Jews slam the door to eternal life in your face, but they don't grant eternal life. Eternal life doesn't come through a synagogue. It's not found through those doors. It comes only through Jesus. This little church has been banned from the synagogue, but Jesus does not ban them. He opens the door for them. You don't control my kingdom. Admittance into heaven isn't through a synagogue. Now, a few of the men I like to read after every week, uh, John MacArthur, Stephen Davey, Tim Keller, they all believe that verse 8 is a door open for evangelism. They say Philly was a gateway to the east, and, and while the city is shipping grapes around the world, the church needs to ship the gospel around the world. I think that understanding is very unlikely. It doesn't fit the context at all. Now, I know that Paul uses the door language in that way. A door was opened to him of the Lord to go to the Gentiles. 2 Corinthians 2, Colossians 4, 1 Corinthians 16. Three times Paul uses the door imagery to speak of evangelism, evangelism and mission. But I think this is a salvific emphasis, not a missional emphasis. We have the missional emphasis all throughout the Bible, but I don't think we need to cram it into this mention of the open door. The metaphor of the open door is used in two ways in the Bible. Effective evangelism, which is how Paul used it, and admittance into the kingdom, which is how John is using it. Here in Revelation 3, it's strictly admittance into the kingdom. Kevin DeYoung, Tom Schreiner, Dennis Johnson, Donald Gray Barnhouse, all, all agree with me. I guess I agree with them. That, um, that this is talking about permanent access to God's presence. We are taking a look at the Lord of the city and the Lord of the church. And firstly, we asked, what is his name? The Holy One, the True One. Secondly, we asked, what is he holding? He's holding keys to heaven, to the kingdom, to the new earth. Thirdly, what is he promising? Verse 9. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. This, this is a glorious promise. 
Now, let me tell you what it doesn't mean before I tell you what it does mean. It doesn't mean that some of the persecuting synagogue will be converted to Christ. Some commentators say that, and it's, it's just clearly not what the text is saying. I don't think the synagogue of Satan will knock on the door of the little church, and when they open it, they will bow down to them. The text shows the faithful will be vindicated, not worshipped. This is a promise of Christian vindication, not Jewish salvation. The theme of Christian vindication floats throughout the book. The adversaries of this little church will be brought into subjection. Jesus is using the Old Testament, particularly a prophecy that God made to his people Israel 700 years before. Uh, Isaiah chapter 45 verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is none other, no God besides him. And then we have Isaiah chapter 49 verse 23. Gentiles with their faces to the ground, shall, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord and those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. Now, 700 years before this text in Revelation was written, God said, to, God said these Gentile nations will come and bow down before Israel. But notice what's happening in the text. The tables are now turned. The multi-ethnic church will have the Jews come and bow. Jesus flips the promise on its head. The ethnic Jews perform the role of Gentiles. Moffat calls it the grim irony of providence. What the Jews fondly expect from the Gentiles, they will give. Jesus tells this church, you can endure anything. If you know in the end, you will be vindicated. What is the holy one, the true one promising? He's promising one, vindication. Two, protection. Verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Jesus said, because you kept my word, I will keep you. Now, I feel like I'm telling you what every verse doesn't mean before I'm telling you what it does mean, but there are some brothers who point to this verse and think it's referring to the great tribulation period. This is often a go-to passage for pre-tribulational proponents that God will not allow us to go through the tribulation. Now, I am going to deal with all of that. You think I'm going to back away from that? No. No. I'm going to deal with all of that when it comes in the book. But I just don't think it's being dealt with here at all. What's being discussed here is that this little church is going to go through some future trials. But Jesus is going to sustain them through it. Domitian is about to unleash severe persecution on the whole Roman world. And Jesus will spiritually protect his church through it. This is protection rather than exemption. The debate is, is always in verse 10 where it says, does it say it will keep you from or does it say it will keep you in? I think the original says it will keep you in. 
That mindset is consistent with Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Jesus isn't going to take this little church out of the world, but sustain them in the world. It's the same phrase in both texts, the same Greek wording, exactly. In the previous five churches, they all speak in the context of coming trials on the church. And I think this one does as well. I don't see it shooting into the future about some massive great tribulation period. Jesus is saying to this little church, I will not keep you from undergoing the trial, but I will keep you through the trial. Jesus promises that he will preserve them from committing apostasy. Jesus promises that he will preserve them from committing apostasy. His faithfulness makes you faithful. He gives you stability while the earth shakes. Verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have. So that no one may seize your crown. <laughs> Jesus says, I'm on my way. You keep holding fast. You continue faithfully keeping my call to endurance. So that no one takes your crown. We've established that these crowns are symbols of ultimate salvation. When I first started preaching, I preached an entire sermon on crowns, and, and uh, it, was, it was all wrong. It's just wrong. <laughs> it's a symbol of ultimate salvation. It's the eschatological reward, eternal life. The crown is not in addition to salvation. It is salvation. Now, Augustine wrongly commented on this verse, and I quote, The number of the elect is sure, so that should someone fall away, another will take his or her crown. End quote. No. You missed it, Augustine. It's not like there's only a certain number of spots, and if you fall away, someone else will take your spot. That's nonsense. Jesus says, I'm going to give you the perseverance so that no one can take your crown. It's very close to the rhetoric of last week, the verbal irony. It's affirming something by negating the opposite. You have to connect it to the previous verse. So what is the holy one, the true one promising? One, vindication. Two, protection. That's spiritual protection. One, vindication. Two, protection. Three, permanence permanence. Verse 12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Let's stop there. Those who are rejected in this life for the gospel's sake will have a place of privilege in the next life. The people hearing this letter read are used to seeing crumbling edifices. They're used to an earthquake hitting and everything being destroyed, but some pillars. And Jesus tells this little church, I will make you sure. I will keep you standing when the world quakes apart. I will make you like white stone pillars unmoved by the ground shaking. This little church, they're little, but they will be secure and will not be dislodged. They will not lose their regal position. And verse 12 continues, never shall he go out of it. No, never in the Greek. It's a double negative. No, never shall this little church go out of it. 
They will be permanent in the presence of God. Never shall they go out of it. Continual enjoyment of God's presence. So Jesus is picturing the members of this little church like big white stone pillars. And then Jesus says, And I will write on him the name of my God. Jesus is writing on the pillars, writing on us, the name of my God. To have the name of God is to belong to him. He's reminding this church, you don't belong to Domitian. You belong to God. Jesus will not only write the name of God on them, but also, the verse continues, the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven. Now, these original readers would have been familiar with the practice of inscribing pillars and monuments with names of donors and emperors. Writing the name of the city of God indicates citizenship in heaven and the new earth. Jesus continues, and my own new name. He's writing a lot. And my own new name. Jesus will write his own name on them. And it's a new name. You say, Kyle, what, what, what is the name? Well, listen closely. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know exactly what it is. But the city is familiar with new names because twice the city had been given new names. The point is they will belong to Jesus and he will protect them. Jesus writes on this little church a triple name. Members of this church will be marked out as belonging to God's son, belonging to God's city, and belonging to God himself. They're going to be marked out as belonging to God's son, belonging to God's city, and belonging to God himself. Finally, they belong. Now, that's the exposition. But we aren't finished. The exposition with very little application. Now that we've done the proper work of exegesis, we can now do the proper work of application. What is Jesus doing with this letter? Well, he's encouraging a discouraged people. He's taking this little church and he's, he's filling them with big hope. God is not shocked when his people are weary or discouraged. And he's not annoyed by their tears. He's writing a letter of comfort. That's why today I want to leave you with four comforts. I want to just give you four comforts from this text to take home. And comfort number one is this. Discouragement is the devil's tool. Hope is the Lord's tool. Now, the things that discourage the believers in our text may not be the things that discourage you. But discouragement is a theme that runs across all times and places and churches. And people face it. All people face it. Some of you are facing it because of a work situation or a marriage situation, or a child situation, or a family situation, or a money situation, or a friend situation. The situations differ from age to age and time to time, but the result is the same, discouragement. I heard Stephen Davey tell a legend, a parable of sorts. It went like this. He said the devil decided to to put his old tools up for sale and use some newer versions. On the date of the sale, 
The tools were placed out in the open for public inspection and each tool was marked with a price. There were all kinds of treacherous looking instruments. Hatred, envy, lying, lust, pride, ambition and so on. Separated from the rest of the tools was a rather harmless looking tool that looked like a, a corkscrew. It was small but well worn and the price was astronomical. What's the name of that, that little tool? asked one of the purchasers. Oh, said the devil, that's discouragement. Well, well, why have you priced it so high? No one can afford to buy it. That's because it's more useful to me than most other tools. I can pry open and get inside a person's heart with that one when I cannot get near him with the other tools. And once I get inside, I can just about make my target think whatever I want. You'll notice it's badly worn because I use it on almost everyone. And it's especially powerful against Christians because most of them have no idea this tool belongs to me. The parable closes by informing the reader that the devil never did sell that instrument and it's still his primary tool to this very day. The devil has his tools. But Jesus has his tools as well. He infuses you with hope. Hope that you will be vindicated. Hope that he will sustain you through the trials. Hope that he will make you persevere. He will give you the stability while the earth shakes. He infuses you with hope of another city. A new Philly. Where you will be a pillar unmovable before the presence of God. Never shall you stop enjoying his presence. When you're discouraged, quickly run to his words of hope. Hold tightly to his promises. For it is in them that you will be infused with sustaining hope. See this little tiny church grabbing on to these words of hope and never letting them go. Look beyond your current city to a future city. Look beyond your current rejection to a future acceptance. Look beyond your current insecurity to a future security. When the little church was discouraged, Jesus infused them with hope. That's comfort number one. Comfort number two, your salvation is secure. Jesus has the keys of death and hell and he has the keys of heaven and eternal life. When Jesus opens the door of salvation to you, no one is strong enough to close it, including yourself. You didn't have the key to that door. You didn't open it to yourself. He opened it to you. You didn't open it and you can't close it. You don't have the keys. Some of you struggle with the assurance of your salvation. Dear friend, grab hold of this truth. Before Jesus ever opened the door of salvation to you, he knew you would commit that sin last week. Yet he still opened the door to you. 
He knew you would use guile to escape that awkward situation. He knew you would take the second look, the sinful look. He knew you would fail on Sunday morning in that moment as a parent. He knew you would overreact and argue. He knew you would drop the ball at work and leave your superior extremely disappointed. Jesus' work on the cross opened the door. His work, not your work. His work on the cross, not your work in the city of Philly. You are trusting in his work and his hand to open the door of salvation, not your work and your hands. Nothing in your hands you bring, simply to the cross you cling. Comfort number three. I like this one too. I like them all. <laughs> Comfort number three. Jesus appears to love small churches. I like to think of the church in Philly as a small storefront church in, in the bad part of town. It's the church with a leaky roof and a little budget. They have little to show for themselves. In the States, we are so numbers-driven and results-driven. Jesus doesn't seem to be. He seems to look only at the faithfulness of the church. This was the smallest church of the seven. But Jesus only pointed out their faithfulness. They were small, but pure. There are no perfect churches. You know that. There are no perfect churches, but it is possible to please the Lord. And they did. It's possible for a local church to please the Lord. Jesus' praise hinges on faithfulness to the gospel, not the number of seats in the auditorium. The, the Christian culture, especially in the West, seems to despise small churches. But Jesus can't stop saying, I love you. I love you. Jesus didn't say to that little church, hey, if you, if you, if you really want to please me, you need to get more talented musically. <laughs> Where is the grand piano, the violin, and the choir, and the orchestra? Or on the other end of the spectrum. Where is the worship band with the artists who have cut records? <laughs> I've, uh, I have a bent. I've always enjoyed the architecture of Charles Spurgeon's church. The Metropolitan Tabernacle. They have six massive Corinthian columns at the entrance. Before coming here, I worked for a church that mimicked that design. It had huge Corinthian columns, taller than this building. It was beautiful. This small church had none of that. They were not elegant. They were not classy. They were small. They were always just scraping by. But Jesus said, 
I'll make you massive white stone pillars, elegant, that will stand forever. This little church was outnumbered in the city. More non-Christians than Christians. More people antagonistic to Christ than following him. That's why Jesus said, I want the pagans, and in that day, many of them were synagogue of Satan. Jesus said, I want the pagans to know that I have loved you. Jesus loves you. Do you believe that Jesus loves our church? He loved it so much that he died for it. That he took our sins and bore the penalty for them. He took our place. Substitutionary atonement. He loves the church. Now let me add this little caveat. I'm going to change gears a bit under the same application. But the book of Revelation has very little to say to individual Christians not connected to a local church. The whole book was written to Christians in seven local churches. He doesn't write these letters to individual Christians, but to local churches. It's written to people in community, those attached to a church. Well, Kyle, I, I have a privatized religion, just me and Jesus. Well, I would tell you in Revelation, I see we and Jesus, I don't see me and Jesus. Comfort number four. Jesus doesn't seem to mind if we have little power because he has all power. This is the last comfort. Jesus gives himself the title, Holy One. He's holding all authority while talking to this little church. And, and I just want to reemphasize to you, FFC, that that this church had no clout in the city. No admiration, no influence, no power. <laughs> I've seen pastors, have you ever seen this? Pastors of influential churches receive keys to the city. Usually the mayor presents it to them. The pastors of this church at Philly didn't receive that. They would never hold the key to the city. The pagans held that. As I read the Bible, more and more I come to believe that Jesus left us here with the deck stacked against us. He did it not by accident, but by design. We think, oh, only if we had more power, only if we had more influence, only if we had more money, only if we had more favor, we could get something done. Jesus didn't want his little church to have big power. He didn't want his little church to have big influence. He didn't want his little church to have big money. He didn't want his church to have any of those things. It doesn't seem he desires for it to be convenient to be a Christian. Apparently, there is a divisive nature to the gospel itself. And in moments like this, the real caliber of the church is revealed. 
It's just something about when our strength fades that our dependence rises. May it happen here. The strength fade and the dependence rise. Let's pray together. Would you stand with me? Father, help us not to despise something that you desire for us. Please help us to recognize discouragement comes from Satan and hope comes from you. Keep us hopeful, expectant, and trusting in your promises. Thank you. Thank you for feeding us this good meal today. Because we leave satisfied.